So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Mann here with The Modern Man. An extra special shout-out to those of you who have joined us, thanks to us being featured on both iTunes and Spotify this week. Very exciting. You wait for one massive corporation to give you some free promotion and then two come along at once. Uh, But welcome, newbies. Where have we been all your life? Welcome to your new favourite podcast. Um, To answer a few of your questions quickly, yes, the catchphrase at the end is deliberate. No, we don't make up the sex questions, they're all real. And no, you don't need to be a man to listen. It's just a pun on my name. Uh, Glad that we're all up to speed. Um, Talking of uh, self-promotion, this week's show is specifically for those of you out there who hate talking yourself up, a condition I believe is often known as being British. Uh, What is it like to be frozen in a conversation, unable to join in because you're so shy? And is that necessarily a bad thing? Or are there attributes that we can celebrate in praise of shyness, a crumb of comfort for the modest mouse? Uh, That is what I discuss in this week's middle feature with a shyness academic. Yes, I found one. A bit of extra business before we begin, though. Um, Apropos our discussion in the Zeitgeist a few weeks ago as to why quality chicken wings seem only to be available when attached to quality whole birds. It seems you can only buy cheap chicken wings in the supermarket in chicken wing-only packs. Uh, Ben Leslie has tweeted me, at Ollie Man. He says, I can't believe the son of a butcher can't imagine where to buy quality chicken wings. Well, uh, technically, Ben, I'm the grandson of a butcher. My father abandoned butchering shortly before I was born. Uh, But to be clear, and thank you for the opportunity, yes, I was talking about the general chicken wing situation in our supermarkets. If you are ever in northwest London and you need quality chicken wings, Louis Mann and Son will sort you out. And if you go in, uh, tell my cousin Sarah you're a Mann fan and, who knows, you might get a free sausage while stocks last um in today's episode you will learn how shyness is different to narcissism you'll learn where to buy a highly inappropriate lego set and what not to say on a date with alex fox let's go on this week's modern man you're silent on the surface but you're kind of incredibly noisy in your head is silence golden when you're cripplingly shy they're basically like Russian doll dildos. And Alex Fox helps a listener with vaginismus open up. But first, it's the man who just met me in the flagship branch of Costa Fresco and really struggled to understand its concept. It's a spin-off. It's Ollie Pitt with the Zeitgeist. I'm still thinking about that. I still don't know what it is. It's basically blue chairs and a bit more salad. What are the big trends of the week? Chess boxing. Now, we've talked about this before. This is the version of boxing. I was going to say the version of chess, but the emphasis is clearly on the violence, where you go and watch two men in a ring, but between each bout, they play a round of chess. It's described as a wild mix-up of two of mankind's oldest sporting obsessions. And essentially what the opponents do is they compete in alternate rounds. So they'll have one boxing bout, and then they'll have a chess round. What's your chess sound effect? 
Less interesting, isn't it? It is less interesting. Even, even in cut-down sound effect form. <laughs> this is not the story. Right. The story is there's an amazing chess-boxing match coming up. It is UKIP versus the Liberal Democrats. UKIP MEP Jonathan Arnott. Have you heard of him? No, I mean, who's heard of any UKIP MEPs? But still, the fact they've got an actual member of the European Parliament to play chess boxing. Yeah. Versus, versus who? Versus a chap called Toby White, who is a Liberal Democrat activist. So he's not an MP or anything like mm. that. But they are touting it as the knockout Euro clash. This is about Brexit. Brexit belt. That's a bit harsh on the UKIP fella, I feel. Uh, no, you should see him. Absolute meathead. Also, oh, really? Yeah, he was on. <laughs> he was on BBC Politics show. Yeah, and he uh, played Tim Farron at chess whilst trying to answer some questions. He's really good at chess. He checkmated him in like thirty seconds. Really impressive. Right. Okay. But when I say I felt sorry for him, I mean that does contextualise it a bit. What, what I mean is, I just imagine that the audience who will go to watch chess boxing of an evening, they're probably going to be more Remainers than Leavers. That's my guess. What makes you say that? I just because the venues that it's on at is that they're not doing it in Stoke on Trent Town Hall, are they? Where are they doing it? East it, London, it's right? In, it's in London. Dalston, yeah. York, York right. Hall. Got to have a villain, though, right? Yeah, but that's what I mean. I, I just, I'm not. I mean, I'm not someone who voted to leave, but I'm just saying. I think if the guy's going to come in the ring, he's, you know, the audience is going to be willing the Lib Dem activist to. Anyway, he's not a proper MEP. So this activist, does he have any experience at chess boxing? Yeah, he is a chess boxer. He's done it before. Well, oh, right. So the UKIP guy hasn't. The UKIP guy has played chess. Right, exactly. So it's completely, I... <laughs> it's a fix. No, it's a fix. but he's boxed as well. It's I about just... a lot of trendy East Londoners watching a guy from UKIP get smacked around the face. And you're justifying it by saying it's fine because they play chess in between. And he's a meathead. Are you good at chess? Uh, I've come up with some names for you. Ollie Mike Abuser, man. Hmm. Ollie the Podmaster. That's man. better, that's better. Yeah, that's quite a good one. Yeah. Ollie, I can't play chess, but I can box, man. But I didn't know if you could box. I can't box. Okay, so no. I can't play chess and I can't box, man. Yeah, it's not really fighting talk, is it? That's the problem. No, I'm You not. know, you tend not to get boxing names that are full of self-doubt. You tend to get names that are a little bit more robust. Like? Back out the way and let me through whilst I pulverise your spleen, man. Yeah, I can imagine your outfit now. What are the other trends you brought for us this week? Mercedes me. It's an invention by Mercedes-Benz, and uh, their idea is called Fit and Healthy. And essentially, what it is, or what it incorporates, is something called a vitality coach. What are you talking about? I mean, I literally, from the word Mercedes onwards, you've made no sense at all. Right, Are you talking about some kind of digital platform? No. This is all about wellness, Ollie. Oh, God. No, no, hear me out. So it's got this thing called a vitality coach. What has... The car. A platform in the car has yeah. like an avatar of me that's based around my health. Yeah, but no avatar. None of that. Just just, what? just a profile. Just your name. It's sophisticated. Right. Okay. It's not like the Nintendo Wii. Okay, so it's a computer in a car. And it's a artificial intelligence-based algorithm which detects your heart rate, your other environmental happenings, and changes... What does that mean? I could work for Mercedes with the bullshit that they were coming yeah. out with. Basically, it just... Consents whether or not you're what type of mood you're in, if you're like it, panicking or stressed out, and then it changes the environment How in the car. How and why? So, How does a car sense what mood I'm in? So you have a uh, wearable, yeah. and it detects things like your heart rate okay. and your how you move. It then changes in the car things like the ambient temperature, the ambient lighting, I and see. it's got seat massages, and then okay. it's got these little displays which uh, put out motion graphics which are supposed to change your psychological mindset if you've just been for a jog for example on Mm. a hot day Mm -hmm. and then you get into a stifling hot car maybe by analyzing your heartbeat it would know you're sweaty 
and it would be a good idea to like put the air conditioning on or put the roof down, for example. Yeah. I still think if you're looking, you know, future speculation stuff, it would still be quicker just to say to the car, put the roof down or put the air conditioning on. That would be quicker than it trying to interpret from my heartbeat whether I've just been for a jog or whether I've just been tossing myself off. No, because I'm I'm really bad at making decisions uh, for myself. I want something else to do. I can't wait for artificial intelligence to make decisions on my behalf. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? I literally can't wait. I just I don't want to have to interact with anything. I just want stuff to happen. I'm not going to pay more for that, though. Yeah, and it's not available yet anyway. It's a concept, so you're going to have to wait. What else have you got for us this week? Lego women. <laughs> okay. So alongside pirates and Lego technics, there is now a set which is NASA female pioneers. Oh, that is very zeitgeisty, isn't it? It is. Hidden figures, all of that. And you can uh, you can get it right now. Which is fine, but actually a bit of my heart sinks when I go into Lego stores now. And I do because I've got a one-year-old child. I'm not one of these adults that collects Lego sets. Still likes Disney, though. I do love Disney. That's a completely different thing. It's almost like a religious thing. Um, when I go into a Lego store, what I'm upset about is that all of their kind of propaganda is about, oh, it's all about imagination. You can do anything with Lego. You can build whatever you want. You can explore something, blah, blah, blah. And then it's all about selling these branded sets. It's all about Batman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Wars. Like, if you just want a box of Lego, you have to go right to the back of the shop. It's like trying to get a top-shelf magazine. Well, that's how they make their money. Don't get angry yeah, about it's it. How they, yeah, no, but that is what I'm angry about, because I think they've taken quite a lot of the imagination away, and they're selling young children. I mean, my son is one. They're selling him the idea that the thing he should really want is the Death Star, rather than a load of bricks he can build whatever he wants out of. Well, I've got something that will just chill you right out. <laughs> Go on. It's a game. I'm going to basically describe some Lego sets mm-hmm. from their title, and you've got to tell me whether they're real yeah. or not real. We'll say Lego, not Lego. Ready? Yes. Football hooligan police set. <laughs> that is definitely not Lego. <laughs> That's real. No, it's not. It is. It was no, released it's as... Not. It is. It no, is. it's not. It is. That's no, it. it's not. It's real. No, it you're a bit... no, you're not. But you're about to tell me some guy's hacked it or done something clever and funny. No. This one is actually no, real. It's not. It was licensed by Lego. I just don't Lego. believe it. In 1998, it was for the World Cup, Football World Cup, and on the box, the image is some police guys <laughs> chasing down a hooligan. It's absolutely. I don't, I don't believe it. Google it. Google it. I think Google that's probably it. an April Google Fool's Day it. story. It's not. They're not going to have for kids something that is basically celebrating violence and disorder. That is what happened. That's what it was. And they've always done police sets, and they've had truncheons and guns. That's violence, isn't it? Next one. Sex in the city. <laughs> Again, surely not Lego. No, that's not real. It's it's almost believable though because of the franchising aforementioned that they've gone heavily into now. But I I think more that they'd go for like a Carrie figure. Mm-hmm. You could just buy Carrie because she's the dignified, acceptable face of Sex in the City, isn't she, Sarah Jessica Parker? You wouldn't get Kim Cattrall on all fours, yeah. would you? No, no, because and you can't open the legs on that. Oh, I shouldn't say stuff like that. And yet you, you you know that you've done the research into that, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> no genitals, but you know whether or not you can open their legs. Mm. Uh, I meant no genitals on the Lego. I'm sure you've got genitals. Don't tell me. What's the next one? Breaking Bad. <laughs> Again, I'm going to say not Lego, but I bet you say, oh, it is Lego, really, because you found something on BuzzFeed where someone's put something together that's not really real. That's what I think. Okay, it is real. I'm right, aren't I? I'm yeah, exactly right. I've kind of, well, I've given it a caveat. Basically, there's a company called Citizen Brick, and they buy in a load of uh, Lego 
from Lego yeah. and then create their own sets. So you okay. can buy it, but not it's not licensed okay. by Lego. Okay. So of course not. But it does look amazing. Are you sure that's not the case with the football hooligan one? No, the football hooligan I one that's is... so hard to believe. <laughs> it was 98. Okay. Anyway, if you've got an idea for a future edition of the Zeitgeist, what should you do with it, Ollie Pitt? You can tweet us at The Modern Man. M-A-N-N. Yep. Don't know why you don't just spell it normally. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is free to download, but it isn't free to produce. If you enjoy it, why not buy us a beer? You'd do it if you met me in the pub, wouldn't you? Well, a virtual pint costs the same as the average cost of a real pint, £3.47. That's about $4.20. Using the secure form on our website, modernman.co.uk, you can sign up to buy us one, two or three beers a month, or make a one-off donation via PayPal. Every payment goes directly towards supporting our independent podcast. Keep us lubricated, keep the shows coming at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Thanks. Now, when you walk into a party, do you feel buoyed by the sense of occasion, ready to meet, mingle and enjoy? I don't. I like to feel I'm quite good at a party, actually, but if you were to ask me, just as I was about to step over the threshold into almost any social gathering, whether I particularly wanted to be there, or whether I would rather head home, get into my jammies, and watch Have I Got News For You, I'd almost always opt for the latter. But once at the event, I usually loosen up a bit, enjoy chatting with new people, and whatever my suppressed doubts about my own brilliance, my internal monologue is basically saying, Yes, Ollie, you are rocking this. It's not like that, though, for everyone, and it's definitely not like that for social and cultural historian Joe Moran. He's written a book called Shrinking Violets, A Field Guide to Shyness, and it is kind of a field guide to navigate the world of conversation and interaction when you yourself are cripplingly shy. And as I learned, his writing very much comes from personal experience. One of the things that I think is quite common with shy people is being afraid of boring people, boring others. One of the things I tend to do a lot is speed up um, when I'm speaking because to get over what I'm saying because I'm worried that the other person is kind of bored by what I'm saying. I mean, the other thing I tend to do is just mumble and people often have to ask me to, to speak up. I kind of have two voices. I have a voice that for performing and speaking because I do it, do it for a living, basically. I'm a, I'm a lecturer. But there's something about there's a kind of switch that you flick that that um if people have come to see you or if they actually expect you to talk then it's mm. kind of easier in some way so what makes yeah. you awkward is is what talking to someone on the bus it's probably kind of social ambiguity or turn taking not knowing when you're supposed to speak mm. actually being in a group of people is hard because uh there's a anthropologist called Robin Dunbar who does stuff about groups social groups and how they kind of communicate with each other and he has this I think it's the rule of five which is that in any group that's bigger than five of people talking it will always break up you can't actually sustain a conversation with maybe six people all talking about the same thing it will always break into two and I found that to be pretty infallible, actually. And when that happens, I find that quite hard because I always feel like I'm sort of stuck between two conversations and I always seem to be able to hear the other conversation when I'm 
to, when joining in with another one. So, but is it an anxiety about how you're coming across? It might be partly about how how I'm coming across because you know I worry about not giving people enough for it. I suppose in a way social life is about an interaction isn't it and it's about sharing things and it's always hard when you're silent the longer you're silent the harder it is to join in because it course it becomes a big thing when you speak if you haven't said anything for half an hour if you suddenly say something it has enormous weight it's probably quite a good tactic if you're you know, if you were kind of manipulating a situation to sort of say nothing and then suddenly pipe up with something, it would people would listen, wouldn't they? But if it's not intended, if you're not trying to do that um, and you don't actually want what you've said to have that much weight, it can be hard. I sort of think that quite a lot when I'm teaching with students that I know that I know you've, they've got to join in fairly early on because in the year, in a class, because otherwise it gets harder and harder for them. So I try and sort of bring them in sort of fairly early on. When you're at your shyest, what are you like? Well, silent. <laughs> um, probably having a sort of um, c- quite a, an active internal monologue. I think that's the problem sometimes is when you're in a social situation and maybe you haven't spoken for a bit, that becomes the story that you're telling yourself. So you're not actually listening to the conversation. You're not kind of, you're not actually in the moment. You're just kind of telling that story to yourself and it becomes kind of self-fulfilling. So, What's the uh, story you're telling? Why have I not spoken? <laughs> or what, you right. know, what, um, when can I speak? And sort of feeling bad about not being able to do that. So in a way, it's a, it's a kind of paradox because you're you're silent on the surface, but you're kind of incredibly noisy in your head because you're sort of you've got this sort of monologue going on. It is often the case, though, isn't it, that if someone's shy, there is an element of embarrassment about themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's a psychologist called Darian Leader who talks about shyness in that way. That that um, he talks about shyness as just being like a symptom of something. So it's a bit like. Um, if you have a fever that will manifest itself in very similar symptoms but there'll be lots of different reasons for having a fever and um, he talks about shyness in the same way that uh, it manifests itself in very similar ways in lots of people yeah so some inadequate people are shy but actually we can all think of alpha males who are probably equally inadequate they're expressing it through a kind of bullish self-confidence yeah i mean uh Shyness is often seen as a kind of self-absorption or narcissism by people who aren't shy and don't understand and understand it. But there's lots of different ways of being self-absorbed and narcissistic. I mean, I am an introvert as well, and introverts are—I mean, this is kind of biologically proven in the sense that you you are depleted eventually by being in company for too long. So you can do it for a bit. And then you just feel a bit exhausted. So you just need to go away and you do need that kind of solitude. Importantly, I think that's not being antisocial. That's just being differently social. You just sort of, you want to talk to people, but not all the time. Now, I'm talking to you backstage at the South Bank Centre. I've just been watching you deliver a sort of monologue about shyness to an audience at the Being a Man Festival. Now here you are with a microphone talking to me. You don't seem to be exhibiting shyness, but you still mm. identify as shy. So talk me through that. Yeah. Well, oddly, I think that um, 
performing or being asked questions can help. Dirk Bogard is an example of an actor who hated acting and who um, used to throw up in the dressing room before every performance. Um, that's incredibly common, actually, shy actors. But then I suppose it sort of makes sense because if you're an actor, you're speaking someone else's lines. And I do think there is something about going on stage that is actually helpful for a shy person because it sort of gives you another chance it's a sort of alternative way of communicating with people one of the people in the book that I mentioned who suffered from terrible stage fright was Laurence Olivier mm. but he did he, he suffered it in his 50s and it, it sort of took him by surprise and he wasn't shy at all he was a very actually incredibly extrovert charismatic person and I think it just it was so shocking to him because he'd had no conception of what it was Whereas I think for somebody like Dirk Bogard, it probably made sense. Everyone gets stage fright, but I wonder if shy people can deal with it a bit better because it's a bit more like what they normally think. <laughs> it's a bit uh, more like just having a conversation yeah, in the kitchen bit, at work. Yeah, it's a bit more like normal <laughs> life. I mean, I know that you've got a bit of a theory around Morrissey as well. Mm. He's a very flamboyant figure, but he's writing about all the kind of internal neuroses you're describing. Yeah, I mean, if you certainly saw him performing, you'd never say he was shy because um, it's it's extraordinary. Well, it used to be. I think it's perhaps a little bit less flamboyant now, but certainly when he was with the Smiths, uh, that stage performance was all about the sort of charisma of the performer and stripping down to the waist and kind of waving flowers in the air. Um, but if you listen to the lyrics, they, they're all about that, really. Um, shyness is nice. That's an interesting song ask um, because it's addressed to somebody else although I suspect it's really about Morrissey's shyness maybe it's addressed to his younger self I don't know but it's actually it's talking to someone else and a lot of his lyrics are like that they it's a bit it's a bit unclear what and who they're about they're clearly about shyness and longing and loneliness and unrequited feeling but they always kind of, they're quite confessional, but then they always step back, you know, before it actually says anything too unguarded. And he was a little bit like that in interviews, or still is a bit like that in interviews, that that in one sense is incredibly open. And, and he was talking about um, depression, being depressed in the 80s, when it was much less common, I think, for men to sort of open up about those things. So... And he was very interviewed. He was one of the most interviewed pop stars of the 80s. So that, again, is a paradox of, you know, somebody claiming to be shy and wanting to be a star and wanting to talk to people. OK, so there are some clear positives to being a shy person, especially if you can turn that round and use it. Hmm. And yet, you know, if you were to Google the word shyness, I imagine you'd come up with a lot of articles telling you how to overcome it, that mm -hmm. it is a kind of debilitating, disabling feature of your personality. Yeah, I think there's a whole industry about that as well. I mean, it's partly just to do with the industry of self-help and personal growth, isn't it? Certainly if you put shyness into Amazon as a, into a book search, you'd get that, you'd get how to conquer shyness or how to defeat shyness so these are people uh, who feel paralyzed by shyness mm. they feel it's holding them back yeah and there are people like that and and i wouldn't want to sort of dismiss the fact that you know if you want to get help for that that you should because it can be extraordinarily debilitating the problem with shyness is that it's just part of the whole continuum of human experience so that the question of when 
shyness becomes something that's actually okay or that's actually maybe even quite endearing and that allows you to live your life perfectly well when does that tip over into something that becomes debilitating the problem i suppose i have with that kind of industry that of kind of curing shyness is that it sort of makes it feel that shyness is always wrong i don't actually think you can entirely get rid of it anyway so um, i think it's just a very tenacious thing i think you can find ways of getting around it and dealing with it but i think you're probably if you're shy as i am you probably always will be and if you have lots of people saying how to defeat your shyness how to conquer your shyness it sort of makes you feel a bit defeated but also you're english and there is a tradition of English men in particular who are sort of allowed to be a little bit aloof and wry and ironic mm. and distant and yet also kind of loved and admired and appreciated. Mm-hmm. If you were North American, it's a different... I mean, I'm obviously generalising hugely mm. here, but there is, we've all had that experience where you're at a bar in the USA and suddenly someone's told you really in five minutes what feels like their whole life story and you've only just met the guy... It's a different yeah. culture, isn't it? Around the world, different expectations uh, are there. There, there are different expectations. There are different cultures, I'm sure. And you're, you're right that in America, it would be tend to be seen as a bit more of a debility. When people talk about English Reserve in the past, I, I've noticed that they always talk about it as something that's disappearing. Like even in the Victorian era, or even in, in the in the early part of the 20th century, people were saying the English Reserve is something that's disappearing. So it's almost like there's no point at which people were talking about English Reserve as being, as existing. They're always talking about it as disappearing. So I'm always a little bit sceptical of just kind of making huge generalisations about different countries. I wonder if actually part of it is just the vocabulary that people use. I, I, I kind of think that shyness is just such a human thing it must exist in fact i know it exists in america as well you know it's just it's it's just something that's extraordinarily universal and common but people just have a different vocabulary for it it's a bit like in in the nordic countries where they are seen as shy or shyer than average and they see themselves as shy but it may be because the words that are used in norway and sweden and Finland to describe shyness and shy are quite positive you know they're, 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 it sort of suggests being a bit sort of self-effacing and modest so it's a good thing to be so it's a bit unclear whether people identify as shy more in those countries because they are or is it just because it's a better thing to admit to being because it just means something slightly different and I suspect it's a bit of both of those things that that's the thing about shyness is it's a real feeling but it's also a sort of cultural articulation of something and the two things get mixed up the feeling that you have is also the narrative that you tell about it I mean, the equality thing is interesting this idea that within a conversation whether it's between two, three or four people everyone roughly speaking Some people are going to be more confident than others, but everyone, roughly speaking, takes an equal share in the conversation. And if that doesn't happen, it feels awkward. I can think of my own friendship groups where, you know, I'm someone who who finds it relatively easy to have a conversation, obviously, because of what I do for a living. I I can name to you now, I won't, because they might be listening, but I could name to you now three or four of my friends who are genuine friends of mine, but I do find it a bit of a burden when I'm in a conversation knowing I'm going to have to lead it. That if I don't say anything, there will literally be a silence. They will never give me a leading question. They'll never say to me, how are you? Am I wrong to feel that way? 
because actually they might be happy sitting there in silence. Maybe it's my issue that we always have to be talking. There's a whole history in human culture of finding silence awkward. Every human culture throughout history has seen silence as implicitly difficult and sometimes a sign of hostility. So it's absolutely human to want to fill a silence. That can vary across different cultures, actually. what One of the... One of the things about Nordic cultures is they don't tend to do a lot of, I think they call it back-channeling, linguistic. It's basically where when someone speaks, you go, mm, mm, you know, you, you sort of, you, or you nod your head, as you're doing now. I'm uh, right now. Um, to, to basically... I, I was to, nodding my head rather going, mm, because mm, I was aware of the irony of yeah. me going, mm, at that point. Um, <laughs> to reassure the other person that you're listening and that you you've kind of got you're getting what they're saying in places like Finland and Sweden they they don't tend to do that they tend to think of it as a bit rude they sort of think of it as kind of interrupting people so it's a bit of a sort of cultural shift you know if you're talking to someone like that you're expecting them to speak or expecting them to nod and go "Mm." it can be difficult and in your own personal history of timidity if you're to go back across your life what are the things you could have done that you hadn't because you were because you were shy? It's very hard to disentangle. I mean, I think there's probably things I might regret, but there's also things that that have happened because of it. I probably wouldn't have been a writer actually if I hadn't been shy, um, because it just gave me that motivation to communicate in a different way. Mm. I think someone else asked me, "Would you take a pill to to not be that person?" But it's actually an impossible question because it's almost like saying what would it feel like to be someone else and you don't know you can, you can never know that because you are you and and with all your regrets or all your all the things that you might have done all the kind of painful uh, experiences that come out of shyness actually they are part of you and it's actually impossible to imagine an alternative life really because that's just that's just what it is and of course i mean you're talking about a fictional pill there but people people do pop pills for shyness effectively don't they i mean there are illegal pills and there are legal ones i mean there are i mean this is really more for kind of extreme social anxiety that mm. that um there are there are certainly pills they're actually they've started as antidepressants but they, they've been marketed as pills you can take for for social anxiety and of course that uh, i mean the most common not a pill but the most common drug you can take for shyness is is alcohol because it's mm. it certainly has that effect of, of um they call it liquid extroversion uh, psychologists that that it does it does make it does cure you of that albeit temporarily the problem is it's also a depressive so it, it, it may just be a temporary cure but you don't drink i don't drink are you worried no. that you're suddenly going to start shouting from the rooftops uh, well well maybe um but I, I suppose i'm a bit worried it might work too much and actually that it might become a bit of a sort of something you rely on so i sort of feel that you have to stay in the real world however sort of difficult it is and however sort of compromised the solutions are i sort of think it it counts more if if you can solve it without those things or if you can try to to solve it Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> boys and girls, go to bed. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> it's Alex Fox. Hello, Ollie Man. Hello, how are you? 
I'm great, thank you. I've been going on more dates, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure man fans and foxhole fans alike are very <laughs> aware. That I am, I am single and ready to mingle. The river's so, been running dry. <laughs> A bit. <laughs> the river's been gushing. There's just been no one in a kayak. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> it is weird trying to date as a, a sex expert. In the in the past couple of years, my public profile, shall we say, has risen a bit. and People are more aware of what I do. And I've found that three things happen on dates. Mm. Either men are completely terrified yes. of my career and presume that anything that we dingle and dangle together I'm going to tell the nation about. Yeah, you've talked about that before and yes, I yeah. still agree. And that would be a concern for me. Yeah. What are the other two things that happen? Number two is that they're really excited oh, yes. uh, and also think that I'll jump into bed with them in 5.2 nanoseconds so it's the and wrong kind of that attention. I'll automatically know everything that they love and, and I will blow their minds with my blowing techniques, yeah. you know, which as we've discussed in the foxhole before, it's very unlikely that your first sexual experience with someone will be absolutely perfect, yes. no matter how skilled and attentive you are, because you're getting to know them as a, as a human being and they're mm. getting to know you. You know, So it's totally fine for your first few fumbles to be uh, less than ideal. You know, that's People's expectations of me are superhuman sometimes. But number three... Number three, what's the third thing that happens after, after bad sex <laughs> and fear? This one's been a surprise, but it's happened a lot. Yeah. I've, I find I go on dates with a guy, I think it's going really well, and then a, a couple of rendezvous in, mm. they ask me a sex question, and it becomes evident that they've just been looking for free advice all right. this time. What Guys, sort of thing have people been asking you? Everything from confessing that they have never managed to ejaculate through penetrative sex, and what yeah. my advice on that, to telling me childhood traumas and stuff, all of which, you know, I'm... I'm very happy to answer their questions, but I've got the decision. But in a formal feeling. process, yeah, right to the podcast. Exactly. Don't do it in my free time. Guys, go to themodernman.co.uk, <laughs> click on the feedback form, <laughs> ask me the questions then. Don't pretend you're interested in dating me so that I will answer your cues over, over a drink. That seems fair. Right, time for one of your listener sex questions, but we do solicit these and welcome them. Uh, sponsored by mycondom.com. Alex, remind us all about them. They have all sorts of stock with which to clad your cock, some of which you may never have seen the likes of before in your life, yes. and your dick won't have seen them either. <laughs> so, surprise your willy in the best of ways at mycondom.com. Yes, and your dick still won't have seen them afterwards because it doesn't actually have eyes. I just yes. feel we should point that out to be responsible. Okay. Uh, here's the question of the eye. week, Alex. It's from a man who is choosing to remain anonymous but is 27 years old and has been with his girlfriend for seven years. Okay. He says, we're the same age, we have a good sex life. However, none of this has been penetrative due to the fact she suffers from vaginismus. When we got together, we were both living at home and she didn't want to undertake treatment because part of her anxiety stems from when she was caught stimulating herself. This is fascinating already, isn't mm -hmm. it? We've been in our flat now, though, for over three years, but she doesn't seem to be interested in addressing her condition. And every time I try and have an open and honest discussion, I get accused of applying pressure on her. So I'm really nervous about approaching the subject because I understand the implications which could mean it gets worse. I'd love to be able to take our sex life to the next level. Not surprised after seven years that is yeah. something he wants. Yeah. Uh, and I feel this would strengthen our relationship even more. So what do I do? 
Okay, it's really lovely that you have been so patient and understanding with your girlfriend for seven years uh, and that uh, it's to be applauded and um, our listeners should be able to learn a lot from the fact that you've enjoyed lots of sexual pleasure that hasn't been penetrative. We we talk about that a lot, that sex isn't just penis and vagina. However, I do understand that in a long-term relationship, you may well want to have P and V sex. Vaginismus is a complicated condition that's part physical and part psychological. Uh, it entails uh, a woman's vaginal muscles subconsciously clenching up so tightly that any form of penetration is both painful and pretty much impossible, whether that's a finger, a tampon, or indeed a knob. So when you say psychological, it's almost like a sort of sexual version of shy bladder, basically. There's, there's nothing physically the matter, but they're not, not in control of it either. It's not well understood, but theories at the moment mostly link it to being psychological there are all sorts of uh things that can trigger vaginismus sometimes uh, if someone has been through sexual abuse or trauma then the fear then connected to sex can mean that their body clams up basically sometimes it can be related i I spoke to someone uh i do another podcast for the guardian called close encounters how dare you cheating on me with another podcast (laughs) i'm complimenting rather than cheating i speak to people about their their sex and relationships and i spoke in depth to a woman with vaginismus who was from an orthodox greek background and had uh, as a young person observed many of the women she loved and admired being partnered off, as she saw it, getting married and compromising their lifestyles. And this, to her, led to a fear of growing up because she associated becoming a woman and getting a partner with giving up her freedom. That fear became so ingrained within her that it had a physical effect because she began to associate sex as one of the things that we often see as a marker of becoming an adult Mm. uh, with compromising her life. Mm. And it resulted in vaginismus. So, I mean, so, in, in this example, we're talking about someone who, according to our questionnaire, was caught, as he put it, masturbating. So, so that sounds to me like something that, I mean, we don't know what other issues are going on there, but it sounds to me like something that relatively easily could be dealt with through a talking therapy. It's certainly not easy. Um, but I mean, one or two sessions. I mean, you say it's not easy. Oh, gosh, but it's, no. It would, take, it would often take many more than one or two sessions. Really? I mean, we know what the root cause is. We know why it happened. Undoing, Doesn't you just need to talk about undoing it? Undoing years of trauma that is so deeply buried that it's actually having a subconscious effect on muscle, mm. having a physical effect on her body, can take... I'm going to prepare our, our, our listener now. Can take a really long time. Even if somebody, and this is often the case, suffers a vaginismus, often absolutely know that the original thing that frightened them or put them off having sex is now no longer applicable to their lives. Mm. Or they can rationalise and say, well... You know, often they really want to have penetrative sex, but their body has become so used to clenching up that now it's become a habit that they can't break. Treating vaginismus can be complicated. Talking to someone about the issue and somebody specialist is absolutely key to improving matters. There are not many therapists who specialise in vaginismus. If you're in London, there's a wonderful woman called Sarah Berry. Sarah suffered from similar problems herself in the past, so she understands it from a personal point of view. She's fully qualified to deal with this kind of thing, and her work has been really revolutionary in um, changing the medical and psychological world's understanding of vaginismus. Mm. She's, she's absolutely brilliant. In terms of the physical therapy, 
you can get have you heard of um a product called dilators Ollie? no i have not they're basically like russian doll dildos okay right. they start off very very small oh, and then get gradually bigger yeah and they are size. training aids yeah. to help women with vaginismus gradually get their body used to the sensation of penetration on their own terms and take it very very slowly I was say, presumably plenty of lubricant as well yeah loads of lube relaxation um a lot of what sarah teaches are relaxing and meditative techniques something i have also heard that she recommends is um, to take the pressure off the idea of penetration because obviously if there's if there's a lot of build-up and and fear and like it's made a big deal out of then your body's more likely to tense up um she often um recommends that her clients get into the habit of just in a kind of casual manner masturbating and just just trying to penetrate themselves a tiny bit with a finger like maybe when they nip to the loo or something to normalize it to make it more chilled out because sometimes the scenario of, of thinking oh I've got to do my I've got to do my penetration exercises now <laughs> can can lead to stress and tension yeah. which makes it all the harder and the question does come from her male partner he's yes. saying what do I do I don't think he is trying to pressurize her I think he's trying to help them both yeah. have a fuller relationship as he sees it and I think he's already proven his commitment to her as a person and his love they've been together for seven years she's not living with her family which is where the original uh, trauma happened that has provoked this physical response in her I would really encourage her if she's listening to this I think your boyfriend only has the best intentions here he's not trying to pressurize you it's obviously her choice if she never wants to have penetrative sex. That is one solution. But I think to be ruled by your vaginismus for your entire life would be a sad thing. Potentially a compromise for you and certainly a compromise at this stage for your lover, for your partner. She's internalised a shame which she has really doesn't need to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong with masturbating. You're certainly not the first person whose parents have caught them masturbating. And I can almost guarantee you that your parents have masturbated themselves. Okay? If you Google vaginismus, there's now a number of support groups. There are uh, women who've got it, talk to each other. Um, Sarah Berry, the therapist I mentioned, she has a forum called Fanning Around. We'll put all the links to all that stuff on our website. Yeah. Uh, Modernmanwithtwoends.co.uk. Just find the blog post for this episode and the links will be there absolutely um and that is the same place you need to head if you've got a question to send to alex for next week's foxhole yes click feedback send me your question Uh, it can be about you about your partner about uh, a topic in general that you'd like to know more about and you don't have to give us your name and if you want to buy yourself some prophylactics this weekend why not head over to mycondom.com where you can get 15% off can't you alex just for listening to this show you can so long as you type in the code foxhole well, that is very nearly it for this week's Modern Man, but there is time to anoint a new ambassador. It's Melanie, who says, I've just bought you a round of beers, I'm a New Zealander living in Helsinki, and I wonder if you have an opening for a Finnish ambassador. If so, I'd happily show you around if you ever made it to the land of sauna and the midnight sun. Uh, Melanie, if the beer didn't sway it, which, for the record, it did, the offer of a tour of Helsinki sealed the deal. I now pronounce you Manbassador 
for Finland. Congratulations. Uh, you can be a ambassador too. Just leave us a review at itunes.com slash M-A-N-N. Our theme music is Skies Over Cairo by Django Django. And now it's time for some new music. This is our record of the week. It's by Artificial Pleasure. It's called All I Got and it's out now. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Day wherever you get your podcasts.